0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents
1: Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks.
0: Mr. Dog.
1: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
1: On July 18th, 2021, the Adventures in Poor Taste Sci-Fi Fest conference included a 45-minute segment of my interview with author and comic book artist Stephen R. Bassett. Bissette's probably best known for his work on the Alan Moore run of the DC comic Swamp Thing. Our interview was about Stephen's book, Cryptid Cinema, with a special focus on the little-known touring film used by Roger Patterson to promote and profit from his famous alleged Bigfoot film. What follows is the extended cut of our interview. The interview was video-streamed, and if you'd like to watch our discussion rather than just listen to it, you'll find a link to that in the show notes. Be sure to like and share the video on YouTube and social media if you like it. We're working to grow our video footprint, and your engagement through liking and sharing helps that effort. Monster doll Tonight, it's, I'm just going to say tonight, it's literally a dark and stormy night where I'm at, so this is fantastic. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I want to say welcome to Steve Bissett uh, to uh, the Adventures in Porte Sci-Fi Fest. So this is the first time this has happened. I'm very excited about being a part of it, so uh you're steve Bazette. uh just briefly i'm blake smith uh from the podcast monster talk and i also do a podcast called in research of where uh a colleague of mine and i watch the uh old tv show in search of and sort of add in the missing science
2: wow yeah it's a lot of fun how have we not met before i know it's crazy <laughs> you know and this I, is like amazing
1: so <laughs> and then i have a show called i cleverly titled it the horror podcast where I talk about old horror movies so, so yeah that's but we're here to talk about your work especially this book Crypted cinema and you also have a new book coming out but could you introduce yourself to the audience hi and- folks
2: uh I'm Steve Bissett. I'm a, a born and raised Vermonter I'm um, still living in Vermont um and uh I primarily uh cut my teeth in the pop culture as a cartoonist working in the comics industry. I'm best known for the work I did back in the 1980s on uh, DC comics, Swamp Thing. Uh, I collaborated with, uh, Alan Moore, John Toddleman, Rick Veach, and, um, a number of other folks on Swamp Thing for about a five year period back in the eighties. And that work is still in print to this day, uh, all around the world. So, um, but my first love is, My first love is dinosaurs. My first love is monsters. Um, And I have been writing about uh, that first love since the 1980s. Um, The late, great Chaz Ballin was a friend of mine. He invited me to start contributing reviews to his fanzine Deep Red uh, back in, God, late 80s, very early 90s. And I've been writing about Horror movies, monster movies, science fiction films, fantasy films, um, and a lot of comics history ever since. I just retired from a 15-year stint uh, teaching at the Center for Cartoon Studies. So um, now I'm, quote, retired, unquote. (laughs) <laughs> do, do you
1: find yourself still busy that's like
2: <laughs> oh more busy more busy I mean now now I'm able to work on you know projects like these and cryptid cinema um and uh I don't have to table that while I do my you know primary uh bread and butter work uh, as I, a teacher I,
1: I have to ask so you've got a 700 page book about the brood yeah so are you a big Cronenberg fan or a huge Cronenberg fan. <laughs> well,
2: no, you know it's it's that I love all I love all cinema and I love all comics and graphic novels and uh, the kind the, the way I look at uh, films and comics. Um, you know, this book is one attempt to write about one movie that's near and dear to me. I love Cronenberg's work, uh, but The Brood was a movie that really was important to me. Played an important role in my life at a certain point, which I get into in the book. Um, The book I I just turned into my uh, book designer, the great Tim Paxton, who designed Cryptid Cinema, the first volume, which we'll be talking about, Blake, um, is a similar deep dive into a single movie, The Legend of Boggy Creek, um, 1972. And um, I, I won't say that I could do a book of this magnitude about any film. Or about any comic but when i when i when a movie hits a nerve with me if a graphic novel really uh you know strikes me um it, it it hits on so many levels that it's hard for me to you know talk in sound bites about it yeah because the connections the pop cultural connections the, the cultural connections are spread so far and they go so deep and that depth and that vastness is what fascinates me about pop culture, and it's exactly the thing that most books ignore.
1: I wanted to show a couple of layout pages. The
2: um, yeah, like, the w- the work that Tim Paxton did.
1: Th- this is such a nifty book. I the the layout feels very much like a nineteen sixties or nineteen seventies monster mag. So when I picked it up, I mean. I ordered it based on the title because, as a a, a huge fan of cryptozoology and uh, someone who's looked at this stuff my whole life, I thought, "Well, that sounds like a title I have to have." And and then when I got it and opened it up, I felt like I had like turned seven again. You know, like I had. <laughs> I, it, it, my parents were super uh, conservative, and they wouldn't let me near the you know i couldn't go look at fangoria or that kind of thing so i would sneak off and look at starlog and fangoria and famous monsters and that sort of our, thing
2: our model uh and okay. tim paxton and i are, are roughly the same age uh, i was born in 1955 so we're of the monster kid generation we grew up with famous monsters we grew up with uh, the Aurora model kits. You know, I was seven when those hit the market. Castle of
1: Frankenstein.
2: Well, yeah. okay. And I was going to say Castle of Frankenstein, the, the greatest of all 1960s uh, newsstand monster magazines was our model for cryptid cinema. In there terms you go. Of design and also uh, in terms of how it's conceptually put together, um, not so much Calvin T. Beck, who was the editor or publisher, But more the writers like uh, the late Bob Stewart, and that's spelled B-H-O-B Stewart. Yeah, I've seen that And Joe Dante Jr. I mean, they really taught me how to think about and how to write about cinema. And that all came from Castle Frankenstein. And uh, that's why cryptid cinema is what it is.
1: You know, so I just we just did an episode yesterday. We recorded about uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because we were doing we're doing a series called Debased on a True Story. Where yeah, we're looking yeah. at the the lead, whatever the facts are behind the legends, you know that sort yeah. of thing. And of course, everybody says Robert Block based Norman Bates on Ed Gein, the um,
2: Minnesota. Killer. He also based him on Calvin T. Beck. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. That's, that's and so and funny. not just Calvin, but also yeah. Calvin's mother. Yes,
1: exactly. So. It, that is such an amazing story. I found it through Tom Weaver's blog and uh read all about it and i was like oh so that's the astounding b movie monster archive so uh i have to say if anybody's listening to this you haven't read that story you need to read it it's really interesting so
2: yeah and robert Block wrote about it uh in science fiction fanzines uh, i've tracked down a couple of reprint editions i may be able to reach one right here yes here we go this is robert Block's um the eighth stage of fandom This is a a book that was put together in, I'd say, the mid 60s, collecting some of his fanzine uh, essays for science fiction fanzines, uh, because Block was writing for science fiction fanzines going back to the 30s and 40s. And in here is an essay about Calvin T. Beck, Calvin T. Beck's mother and psycho by Robert
1: Block. need to read that that is fantastic okay (laughs) i i've just been i found this out about a month ago two months ago and it's just been stuck in my head i want to know more
2: uh well get your hands on uh and and uh, these are not plugs that i benefit from in any way so please don't think of it that way uh i just love sharing information uh uh (laughs) dick clemenson richard clemenson editor publisher of little shop of horror the one of the great fanzines uh dedicated to hammer films has been running a series of articles uh, in each new issue about some aspect of Monster Magazine culture. And he he reprinted, with permission, Ted White, the science fiction author and editor's essay about visiting Calvin Beck's home and working on laying out an issue of Castle of Frankenstein. Wow. <laughs> so if you want to know more, Blake, you ha- and that was like yeah. uh, three issues ago, four issues ago of Little Shop of Horrors. I would um, like to read that for multiple reasons. Yeah, for one thing,
1: I, I, I'm old enough that I just, I i got into uh, writing in print uh, right at the time when the switch was being made to digital. So um, i i my original work in high school, in my high school newspaper, we would like go and they would print out the sheets and we would do the wax layout, right? You know, lay it down. Yeah, over the, yep, yeah, so, yeah. Yep. Uh, using and by the time, waxers. Exactly. And then by right, the time yep. I got to college, they had started switching to using Macs. And so- uh, I got so I'm fascinated by the way that zines and magazines were done back then. Um, I think maybe the the sort of the line between professionals and amateurs was a little bit blurry. And it kind of is now in some ways. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, but those those techniques that fanzine editors were using, certainly by the 70s and 80s, were almost identical to how professional magazines were put together. Uh, local newspapers you know the weekly the free weeklies that that every pocket of america has in some way shape or form put together the same way and you can see it
1: you if you go like i do a lot of newspapers.com archive research for the in 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 search of stuffs. all those articles in the 70s you know are relevant to the show Uh, but you can see it in the local papers like especially around they, they didn't put a lot of effort into the tv lineup and the movie ads
2: yeah they're so, just throwing yeah. that stuff yeah. down <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: because yeah. It, things are askew you know there's yeah. it's 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 i love it i love it i love it it feel it feels very refreshing to see how things used to be done so.
2: that's the feeling we wanted to get encrypted cinema
1: yeah right you uh, did uh, very, you know yeah.
2: uh, tim does incredibly professional layouts and designs but tim totally gets you know, the, the, Tim and I are going through the stage now with with the second Cryptid Cinema book, which is called Cryptid Cinema, The Boggy Cre- Creek Bequest.
1: Not uh, it, Cryptid Cinema 2, Electric Bogaloo. It, That's, no,
2: <laughs> no, we're not, no. That, you know, that'll be the Canon Films issue. So, uh, no, uh, the second one is called Cryptid Cinema, The Boggy Creek Bequest. That'll and, be fantastic. Um, we're at the same, we're, we're still feeling out How are we going to shape the material i've turned in all the text material which is massive we may have to break this into two volumes that will come out at the same time because there is a lot of material in this in this volume um but we're feeling out what it's going to be now that first book the one that you just held up that we'll be talking about primarily here um we knew we wanted it to look and feel like castle frankenstein that was our our conscious model um what was harder for me to articulate originally to tim was that i saw the book as sort of uh, conceptual origami like i wanted the book to kind of fold around the reader's mind regardless of what order you read it in um there you go because yeah. it's not a linear book the first cryptids i ended up writing the books backwards what is going to be the third volume next year should have been the first um But I, you know, I was just starting. I was just beginning to feel my way around. Okay, what is cryptid cinema? So this first book is sort of putting the boundary lines up. And some people justifiably right from the start complained that some of the stuff I wrote about aren't classic cryptozoology, right? Yes. My argument is cryptid cinema, like horror cinema, (laughs) <laughs> like like all genres in cinema is quite diverse it's quite big and um i was i was trying to hit the furthest reaches of these are the things that that sort of define the the per, the boundaries the parameters of what i think cryptid cinema is and this second book which is focused primarily on the legend of boggy creek the 1972 charles b pierce film is just about one movie and what it spawned, what it caused, what what the legacy that followed the legend of Boggy Creek is because, and, and so it's a more focused book than that first volume. The first yeah. volume is like a shotgun blast, yes. from monster uh, magazine goodness, yes. you know. Yes, yeah, yeah,
1: in, in a good way, yeah.
2: <laughs> and and it was also about you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, films that I like. You know, do 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 films about urban legends fit well? That's why my long write-up of this obscure Elmira, New York shot independent movie, The Glass Head is in the first book. What about H.P. Lovecraft? You know, I mean, is, when H.P. Lovecraft referred to the Yeti for one <laughs> of the first times yeah. in popular American fiction, he wasn't referring to the, the classical Yeti that you and I think of today. He was linking it with these creatures from beyond the stars um, and, and putting it in the context of these sort of crustaceans that that show up in Vermont in his story, Whisper in the Darkness. Um, but he's talking about the Yeti. He is referring to lore that in the late 1920s was pretty obscure. Yeah. It was not known the way it was in the 1950s, where it had entered the popular imagination. So, you know, I was testing the boundaries. Uh, a lot of people argued with me about including equinox the 1970 film equinox in there but you know uh i got a whole stack of paperbacks over here in my library from the 1970s of books that mash up ufo sightings and bigfoot sightings you know there's this weird blurring that happened in cryptozoology in the late 60s and throughout the 70s yeah were they a cult were they from another dimension
1: oh that's not gone that's not gone yeah well john
2: John keel was one of the proponents of the dimension theory and now it's like so that first book was really about let me have some fun talking about the films that are at the far edges let me hit the grace notes you know i made sure creature from the black lagoon king kong the classic Bigfoot movies, Legend of Boggy Creek, they're all mentioned and pictured in cryptid cinema. But the focus really begins with the second volume. The first book is meant to be a fun monster magazine.
1: you yeah, know? and, and right. it is. it is. I I got the book and almost immediately, just after opening up, dropped it and like ran and wrote to a bunch of my friends in the monster world. It was like, you got to get this book. Even if you don't read it, you're just going to want to look at it. It's very well, it's just it was well, it was captivating so yeah well, but i do want to talk about there's a lot of really cool stuff in here yeah but but it, in the middle of all this gorgeous monster beauty there's this wonderful essay about one of the most obscure pieces of cinema that people just don't know about they think they do and that is bigfoot america's abominable snowman which oh, was yeah which was the touring film you could actually talk about this more than me i think or at least probably more uh cogently the this everybody knows the patterson gimlin film as being this little tiny clip of footage but patterson and gimlin when they made this movie they actually took it on tour and they did something called four walling and uh this would be they rented the cinemas and then they took the ticket sales um And I think from what I've heard, they make quite a bit of money, but they've got this Bigfoot America's abominable snowman.
2: What was that?
1: I mean, I I know, but let's explain to the audience. I can
2: tell you exactly what it is. I'm I'm scrolling through my, okay, here we go. Now, what, in 1967, um, the uh, mysterious film footage was shot in california that is still argued about to this day by patterson and gimlin and it's referred to as the patterson gimlin footage and it's a few minutes a few seconds really really yeah. shaky you are there cinema verite of a sasquatch female sasquatch looking over her shoulder and walking away that's all that happens in this shaky footage um, and uh, after they had this footage and you and I can discuss or we can ignore the controversy surrounding the footage. That's your call. It's your interview. Um, well, let's, let's skip it for now. <laughs> yeah, we'll skip it for now. Let's just say let's just say the footage existed. And exactly. then the question was, what are they going to do with it? Yes. Okay? So what ended up happening is um, there's a lot of erroneous information out there, including on Wikipedia, IMDb. Uh, so on and so forth, other than regional or national news broadcasts that showed snippets of that footage when it was relatively new. So we're talking about end of 68, uh, end of 67, beginning of 68. The first licensed use of that footage was in a BBC two TV special called Bigfoot America's Abominable Snowman, and it was broadcast once in England, Saturday, July 27th, 1968. And some of my British friends have verified that for me. People like Kim Newman and Jonathan Rigby, you know, genre specialists who keep track of all these things like TV listings and yeah, so on. Yeah. So they nailed it for me. Um, it was, we didn't know whether it had ever been shown. They nailed it. It was shown Saturday, July 27th, 1968. And it was the first nonfiction, non-newscast Sasquatch TV special anywhere in the world, as far as I know. So it was also the first licensed use of the Patterson-Gimlin film, meaning BBC2 paid something to Patterson-Gimlin and their partner, and... Um, And it was hosted by Dr. John Napier, who was the curator of mammals at Smithsonian Institute. And it included in its half hour interview format, a guest interview with Ivan T. Sanderson, the man who wrote the book on the abominable snowman in the early 60s. Okay. Uh, It was only shown once in the UK, never shown in America. Now, we don't know the particulars of the deal. And it's still a mystery. No paperwork has turned up. Uh, Lauren Coleman has the actual reel uh, of the film in the collection of the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. And it was Lauren Coleman who very kindly allowed me to screen uh, the film. Now, the print he has does not have the padding or the introduction material that Patterson added to the movie for their roadshow. One of the other museums that has a print, and that's all covered in Crypted Cinema, there's a page where I actually show the, the photographs of their reels, you know, the cans of film. They may have prints that have that additional footage. I would love to see it. Me too. Now, that deal, whatever the, the contractual arrangement was with BBC Two, included Patterson getting a copy of that bbc2 documentary okay and perhaps more than one print of it he either had more than one print or he had um uh, a print that he was able to strike other prints off of. right right because uh there the numbers vary but you know he and his partner had a number of prints that they were traveling around Probably. primarily the northwestern states That was yeah.
1: deatly his brother-in-law i think it? yeah it was his, yeah. his yeah.
2: brother-in-law deathly yeah. and or deatly i'm not sure how to yeah. pronounce yeah. it neither <laughs> being from duxbury vermont don't trust my pronunciation yeah. of any name here <laughs> um so what they were doing you were right when you said they were four-walling and four-walling was a reference to uh, a practice that goes back uh, to the silent era where a producer could come in or a distributor could come in and rent the the theater space. They rent all four walls. They collect the box office. The theater keeps all the concession, okay? And and, and that practice goes back to the old state's rights system of distribution that used to be how feature films uh, were distributed throughout the U.S. and in the provinces in Canada.
1: I think, I think anybody interested in Bigfoot cinema, you're going to know Sun Classic. And they, they did, they were like they masters. Forewalled. And four-walling yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. was was a venerable practice. I mean, yeah. before Sun Classics, before uh, Patterson, um, going back to the silent era, people would travel to the Arctic, right? They'd go to the North Pole. Oh, I've seen, the, yeah, yeah. I've
1: seen those adventure films. They'd yeah, come yeah. back
2: mm-hmm. with film footage of that th- those travels and they would rent theater spaces, auditoriums, public halls, present a lecture, show the film, and that essentially was the beginning of four-walling.
1: In fact, I just found out that practice, the early practice, fairly recently, and it, suddenly King Kong makes a lot more sense. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, it, exactly. it gives you a whole lot more context to the world that they were kind of rolling into. So.
2: Yeah, yeah, because the 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 men who made King Kong, Marion C. Cooper and Ernest yeah. B. Schoensack, they had done that with their, their pseudo- documentaries like grass and another feature called chain um and it was hard to convince you know the studios would look at the films and go we can't sell that so four walling became a way of not just making money that you pocketed it was also a way of proving to the studios this has an audience out there yeah Um, and you know even big shots like walt disney made uh uh the first true life adventure nature film, which was, I believe, Beaver Valley.
1: Steve asked me to insert this quick correction. Seal Island in 1948 was the first of the true life adventures from Disney. And this was the one that Disney had to forewall to sell to RKO, or at least to approve the concept. Beaver Valley was 1958, and that was the second of these kind of features. And by this time, RKO was on board. And back to the show.
2: And RKO, the the distributor of King Kong, was distributing Disney's films, and he showed them his true life adventure, and they went, no. So what Disney did is he rented four walled a theater space, and uh, it did so well that RKO changed their mind and went, oh. And, you know, the way it changes their mind is they go, oh, there's money to be made. Exactly, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So Patterson was doing that. Patterson and his brother-in-law were doing that with their slightly padded version of Bigfoot, America's an Abominable Snowman. Now, it was a half hour program. The BBC Two uh, production is half an hour long, 30 minutes. So they were padding it out to what, 45 minutes, an hour? I'm not sure until I see it. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Um, I and- see there was
2: a talk. I,
1: I've seen pictures. Yeah, they of him had a standing, talk. Yeah, yeah. They gave
2: a lecture. I mean, they went right back to the prototype from the early 1900s of, you know, <laughs> explorer goes to Africa, shoots footage in Africa, comes back. No studio wants it. He road shows it. That's yeah. exactly what Patterson was doing. with now,
1: Yeah, Gimlin the, was out at this point, right? He they'd had some kind of
2: falling out. Yeah, or Gimlin wasn't interested. I mean, it's a lot of work. You know, yeah. you like you, you got to schlep this stuff around the country. You've got to put it, you know, typically you got to run far- ads, a lot of advertising. You got to do the yeah. advertising yeah. beforehand. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a variation of how exploitation cinema classically worked. You know, uh, guys like Kroger Babb <laughs> with one of the biggest moneymakers in American cinema history was a movie called Mom and Dad. It was like a sex film that ended with a, a an actual childbirth on camera. You know, which was the only way most most Americans saw a woman's breast and vagina for the first time on a screen. And they were schlepping the prints of mom and dad around in their car, in the trunk of their car. They'd show up at the theater, show segregated shows, men only, women only. And then they were out of town before the police could show up. (laughs) Um, So that's what Patterson was doing. You know, Patterson and his brother-in-law were they would target a community. figure out where they want going to show it and it might not be in a movie theater it might be at the high school auditorium it might be at the local town hall and they would show the film do their talk uh and patterson also printed up his book his famous book uh, one of the first books on uh, bigfoot published in america and he would sell those and then they'd go on to the next town they made a lot of money you know and it and and when you're pocketing that money it's cash that you're picking up at the box right. office it feels like a lot of money but 6 months in that gets pretty old you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. um it, it's 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 not that different from being a band and you're touring right or it's yeah, yeah. not that different from being a live theater troupe and you're touring um yeah you don't have to do the full performance every night but it's still a horse and pony show that you're trotting out, or in this case, a Sasquatch and pony show you're trotting out. Um, That played through 1969, perhaps early 1970. Part of the plan was the roadshow was initially going to be, let's prove this works, but then let's, you know, strike a deal with one of these nature film distributors, and then they can take it over. Well, that plan went south when they actually started getting the money from the box office. And it's like, well, we don't want to share this. Um, Once it had run its course and Patterson also, I believe was ill with some form of cancer. Right. health was suffering Um, for whatever reason, once it ran its course, um, they had proven there was an audience for these films, but other uh, forces had come to play and the studio they had talked to was one of a number of outfits that were road-showing these hunting and these wilderness nature uh, documentaries, and those movies were making big bucks at the end of the '60s. Movies like *Vanishing Wilderness*, you know, um, they were making big money, and um, and they ended up buying. They they did license the the footage from uh, Patterson and his uh, and perhaps his brother-in-law was still a partner at that point. I'm not sure as yet. Um, But they ended up just running it as like a 15 minute short that was called Bigfoot before uh, a film they had picked up from the National Film Board of Canada on wolves, actually a very excellent film called Cry of the Wild um, about wolves. And that's where uh, the Patterson Gimlin film was first played theatrically in the United States was as uh, the short before uh, Cry of the Wild. Wow. So
1: I guess it, that's, that's fantastic. And, and, and I don't think people understand or, or I mean, it's, it seems like it's almost a forgotten film. And I think there's what, five copies left?
2: Yeah. Something? And yeah, here's yeah. the problem. It is a problem, right? If BBC Two, the current incarnation of BBC, knew that those prints existed, they'd be saying we want that back. Right. Nobody knows what the deal was with Patterson. Yeah. Patterson's dead. And there's a lot of legal quagmire around that. And I've been told by a number of, I've been uh, doing uh, bonus feature work for a number of Blu ray labels over the past year. And it's a lot of fun. I bet. I enjoy it. I do that for free
1: with my kids, but you know. (laughs) (laughs)
2: There you go. Well, but but the rights. Shut
0: up for watching the movie. (laughs) The rights issues
2: associated with that kind of thing can be really sticky. Yeah. And I think that's why it has become a lost film. We know there's some prints out there. Uh, and a, and I can say that at least one of the institutions that has the print put feelers out and then pulled them right back because it's like they're not in the, the business of distributing film. <laughs> and yeah. that can get very expensive very quickly.
1: Well, um, they, have, they have a deep catalog of stuff that I would be happy to pay for. They don't stream or
2: make available anywhere. So... Well, I, that's they, it. The question yeah. is, I mean, BBC, you know, as we all, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you know, BBC, like destroyed a lot of their legacy you know yes, there are yes. lost episodes oh appropriate to the subject we're discussing the first of the abominable snowman doctor who uh, uh story arcs is gone that's among yeah. the missing episodes from doctor who
1: i do have the novelization <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah the novelization is out there that's what i read as well to, yeah, to get yeah. my handles on it but uh, you know so uh, this stuff is it, it's real legal quicksand um, yeah. I keep hoping uh, that something might change in that regard. But having, um, having been able to listen to Pamela Pierce Barcelou, who inherited um, and um, saw to resurrecting and restoring her father's film, The Legend of Boggy Creek, it, that process cost her tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And none of these museums are in a position. They don't have an endowment that allows them to go, right, here's the hundred thousand dollars we'll set aside to try to bring the long lost half hour or one hour or 45 minute Bigfoot America's Abominable Snowman to market much as you and I would love that.
1: I would. I would pay. I'd yeah, be happy to. Exactly. I'd love to have a copy. Now, I did see someone seems to have segments of it on YouTube, or that's what certainly looks like it.
2: Well, when I was able to uh, watch the film, um, and I was I was permitted to watch it quite closely uh, and spend time with it, I have prepared a full transcript of the BBC Two production that will be published in the the third Cryptid Cinema volume. It'll be part. It'll be the a part of the chapter on the films of the 60s. So I will be providing as close as I can as a writer, yeah. you know, the experience to interested readers like yourself, Blake. So, but I have, and but it is so a full tra- transcription from I beginning am, to end of am, everything. This is that's a in huge there. public service. I
1: appreciate it. And I will happily, I would have bought the next copy anyway.
2: Yeah. And it is a fa- I mean, it is a classic piece of cryptozoological pop culture. I mean, it's yeah. a really important piece of work and thank God, it has been preserved in a number of museums um, and uh, for their own purposes, some of those museums have transferred it to DVDR, but they cannot loan it out. They cannot sell it. You know, they cannot lease it. So they're at least trying to see to preserving the content for the ages, yeah. but you know, the museums just aren't set up for this kind of thing. If there's any underfunded branch, of museums in north america is cryptozoological yeah, yeah, museums yeah, exactly. you know <laughs> clearly what charles b pierce started with the legend of boggy creek has taken over and permeated our pop culture in ways yes. that were unimaginable in yeah. 1970
1: well i mean it, he's certainly got some room in my head that won't be uh leased to
2: anyone else i got <laughs> you know in the second book i really try to get into how it's hard to communicate to someone in the year 2021 how pioneering that film was in yes. 1972. Have you so you've seen the new the, restoration? The new restoration, the, the, the new restoration is, yeah. is is glorious. I mean yeah. it and it's not just the fact that you know Pamela Pierce and the Eastman uh house uh did a proper job of curating, uh working with Technicolor and Technoscope and Lavishing the same attention on the audio track as well, uh, the Jaime Mendoza Nava um, soundtrack—not just the music, but the whole oral landscape. Oh yeah, 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 yeah! Phenomenal. It's a, it, that's but what's hard to describe is it's one of those things like, you know, there was cinema before King Kong, and there was cinema after King Kong. Right. And right. we cannot imagine what it was like. We we just it is not possible for us to even imagine what it was like in 1933 to experience that for the first time
1: i got to hear uh ray harryhausen and ray bradbury talk about how seeing that film changed their life
2: yeah yeah and and and, and, you know talking about other genres i mean you know there there were westerns before john ford's stagecoach, yes and there were westerns (laughs) after john ford's stagecoach but there's no way to put yourself back in what it was like in 1939 to experience stagecoach, And in my lifetime, what, how old are you, Blake? I am 51. Okay, I'm 66. In my lifetime, I experienced Night of the Living Dead. Nice. And there was cinema before yes. Night of the Living Dead, and there was cinema after Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, And yeah. I, yeah. I want to put it to your listeners, the people viewing, the people with us in this, you know, uh, venue, The Legend of Boggy Creek was almost that landscape altering of film in a very modest way. And part of what I love about late 60s, early 70s independent film is there was a lot of that shit happening, right? Um, No studio saw Easy Rider coming. Columbia lucked into picking it up and benefited from the millions and millions of dollars it generated in. In theaters, but there's no way a motion picture studio like MGM, 20th Century Fox, or Columbia Pictures would have made Easy Rider. The same goes for Night of the Living Dead, Legend of Boggy Creek, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Eraser Head later in the 70s. You know, the the films that altered the cinema landscape, the films that changed everything about our how our even our imaginations functioned. As individuals yeah. came out of nowhere. They came out of the woodwork. And one of those was that little movie shot in Texarkana with a, with a rented technoscope camera by a guy who had hosted a kitty show and ran an advertising uh, firm who had the wherewithal to go, I'm going to make this movie. And it was a crazy movie that he made. Cause it was yeah. sort of like a Disney nature documentary right yeah yeah it was sort of like the wilderness adventure uh independent films that were everywhere at that time and it was sort of a monster movie but it wasn't any of those things (laughs) yeah he put together things that shouldn't have worked together you know like why have two songs in a monster movie like why do that well when you think about it our, my generation, and you probably got a taste of it growing up, we grew up with all these you know, Disney true-life adventures narrated by Rex Allen and Tex Ritter. And there'd be a song. And so Charles Pierce went, okay, I'm going to have a couple songs, right? Because this is like folksy, right? This is about the people. And that's the other thing that made it work, is really that movie is about a place and a time and, a, and the people who live there. The monster is sort of the, the, you know, the planet with the gravitational pull for the whole thing. But what made that movie sing, I saw it when it opened at the Paramount Theater in Barry, Vermont, up here in New England. And when we saw that movie, even though they were speaking with accents that were not our Vermont accents, we recognized those people. We yeah, recognized yeah. those lifestyles. We were poor. <laughs> yeah. You know, we didn't have a pot to piss in. And what was amazing about that film is it was one, it was, if not the first, it was one of the first films to go, you don't have to go to Skull Island to find a weird critter. Yeah. It's out by your laundry right now. It might reach right in your window. It might (laughs) grab you while you're (laughs) taking a dump. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And that was a revelatory experience back then. It really was. Yeah. And I'll never forget how loud the audience was screaming by that last sequence you know uh with the assault on on the house i mean it really worked it really worked no it it did it's a good it's a
1: scare that haunted me for decades yeah
0: yeah
2: yeah but it wasn't the scare you know what the scare did the scare is what had people go home and talk about the movie yeah and it was word of mouth that like all these films i'm mentioning it was word of mouth that propelled it
0: it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major
1: podcast platforms, and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwag Pod
2: and Wagon. Um, it was distributed by this outfit, Howco International, that. If you look at, uh, go ahead and look online at other films from the 50s and 60s that HALCO International distributed. I'll give you some titles The Brain from Planet Arouse, Teenage Monster, (laughs) Night of Bloody Horror. Now you look at their ads, and it's like classic old science fiction monster movie ads, you know, see, see, you know, (laughs) lurid ads. The ad that Charles Pierce, and Jim Ball, uh, who was his partner in the advertising firm, and the artist I hired, Ralph MacQuarie, who did the painting, that they put together was the antithesis of how Howco International had sold every other movie they'd ever released. It was the image, the title, and three words, a true story, and the credits. That was the promotion for Legend of Boggy Creek. Um, they had a great radio spot and and they did sell it with tv spots once the film was out there and began to rack up earnings at the box office yeah, but yeah. it was it was it was sold in a way that no other monster movie had certainly ever been sold and it was sold in a way that no nature documentary had ever been sold it was something new we had never even seen a true crime movie sold that way
1: I, speaking of influential i i noticed i've been watching a lot of um uh, a lot of bigfoot movies oh to yeah do, to do yeah, a bonus do it. feature for for it. well it all started uh i was going to go to a convention and do a talk i was on a panel that was going to be about bigfoot movies and i thought well i'll go watch all four you know there's over 200 <laughs> listed yeah, on yeah. imdb and yep. and counting they're still they're still coming out oh yeah yeah But watch, been i've fun. been back I, I went i went old and i after Boggy Creek, so many of the Bigfoot movies have a either a documentary or pseudo-documentary sort of style, and they all have a song, and often terribly catchy. Not not a Crabtree catchy, but catchy. So right, right, so, right. So that 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 pattern. I, I'd I'd love to just put together a playlist on Spotify, but a lot of these aren't available. Of just just Bigfoot songs from Bigfoot cinema. So.
2: My my son Danny, who is a musician, uh, among many other things. um has been working on just that kind of project and um uh for the third cryptid cinema book uh we're gonna put together sort of an overview of what lps and 45s are released you know oh yeah a number uh, of them you know there's uh
1: sasquatch the legend of bigfoot uh they four-walled that one it came to my hometown I didn't buy it, but they were selling an album that had all the tracks on it. Like, like, don't of, you
2: wish uh, you bought it? Don't well, yeah, it, but I was,
1: you know? I, I, I was poor. I, <laughs> hey, not, you know what? Can you
2: do? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of that stuff out there, and that all started with Legend of Boggy Creek. You know, uh, it all started there. Um, there were there was one Bigfoot movie. You know, we've talked about Bigfoot. America's Abominable Snowman is the first documentary. Right, that made its way from BBC Two over to America and was roadshowed in 1969, early 70. 1970 was the first uh, narrative fiction film that sold itself as a Bigfoot movie because the title was Bigfoot. <laughs> um, depending on your taste, I mean, let, let's get down and dirty. Uh, given the context of this panel, we're supposed to be talking about bad taste films, correct? That, I think that's right there in the brain. Well, right? Bigfoot so,
1: 1970 <laughs> fits right in there, now that's, right? that's If I remember correctly, that's Bigfoot, it mates with anything. Is that the tagline?
2: Well, that's one of the taglines. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, this it
1: is um, Robert Mitchum's son, is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. the,
2: the, Mitchum's brother is in it,
1: right? Yeah. with John
2: Carradine.
1: Yes, yes, and, yes, yes, yes. He's playing the I, uh, the the greasy sales guy, the assistant to John Carradine's traveling salesman. Joy
2: Lansing. I mean, yeah. it has an amazing exploitation. Cast. She's it's, very talented. She <laughs> she was. <laughs> She's and <laughs> and it is a film about miscegenation. The whole premise of that 1970 Bigfoot movie is they're mating with human women. In fact, there's a little Bigfoot. Yes, there is loathed by the other Bigfoots because it's part yeah. human part bigfoot right yeah. now this whole miscegenation theme goes way back right? yeah well i'm That's from 80. georgia yeah yeah well i've been reading a lot of <laughs> early uh science fiction hominid stories be- going back to the 18 late 1800s early 1900s and the whole miscegenation theme of you know hairy jungle beasts that aren't gorillas You know, wanting to mate with humans or having mated with humans, that was popping up in short stories back uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, And it was already sort of in the DNA. And if you're just talking about Bigfoot movies. um, Take a look at the 1950s Yeti movies, Uh, one of the first American um, abominable snowman movies. Came out in 1956. It was uh, made by Jerry Warren, an infamous low budget filmmaker who had made some of the most stupefying movies ever made. It's his best movie. And it's called Man Beast. And the whole premise of Man Beast is there's an expedition going up into the Himalayas trying to find a lost expedition, a brother who has disappeared. And the guide who is leading them into the Himalayas, it turns out, is part yeti, part human,
0: and he's leading
2: them up there so that he can dispose of the men on the expedition and save and breed with the woman, the sole woman who's part of the expedition. That's nineteen fifty-six. Okay. Wow. Um, so by the time we get to nineteen seventy, with the big the movie called Bigfoot, it's it's in the genetic, <laughs> you know, it's in the genetic code of these cryptid movies. And part of why I talk about cryptid cinema as a genre is, isn't that part of the impetus of King Kong? Isn't that what drives the creature from the Black Lagoon, right? This whole threat of and allure of interspecies.
1: Well, that's, uh, you You included uh, the uh, Dunwich Horror?
2: Oh, yeah. Because then, Lovecraft uh, was right Lovecraft on Lovecraft's right up yeah, in all that. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. I mean, right out there, you know. Yeah, so. um, and what what is the Dunwich Horror? It's two brothers who are the result of miscegenation y- yeah, between yeah. some being from the other side and a mortal woman. And one of them is more like a human being, Wilbur. And the other one that we don't see until the end of the story uh, looks more like its father, is the yeah. famous tagline <laughs> of the story. You know, um, Yeah, that's a lot of what drives cryptid cinema. Also, I would argue... You know, that is the unsavory aspect of the genre, because it really also has to do with racist and xenophobic attitudes that still permeate this culture to this day. Yeah. Not the way they used to. I mean, you know, you never, ever uh, would have, um, uh, you just wouldn't have seen a film as explicit as, say, Night of the Demon* which was made in 1980 that's a bigfoot movie you have to see oh i've yeah, seen boy. it yeah yeah okay. we've
1: covered i've covered it for my bonus material that is uh it is a, a seriously crazy film it uh,
2: is a seriously crazy well
1: i've film. argued though i mean it it, it probably the most loved crafty and bigfoot movie ever made as near as yeah. i can tell so i mean I agree. It,
2: it, until you get the demon warp
1: yeah i haven't got the demon warp oh, yet. yeah
2: demon it, warp it, takes it it to is on my list level, so. yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> um But yeah, uh, Night of the Demon is very much a Lovecraftian spin on the Northern California Sasquatch lore. uh, Yeah, ways about it. It, Uh, I, 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 I I liked it. I mean, I, I, it's like people people, Movie. I people warned me
1: you won't like this movie. It's a piece of trash. I'm like, I like a lot of trash.
0: It was pretty good.
2: (laughs) It was an amazing. I mean, that was one of those movies I first saw on VHS while binging with friends, where you'd go to the video store rent like five movies you'd never heard of yeah and that was one of the ones that like we our jaws were dropping and we were yeah, like no my, i we can't believe we're. i
1: managed it. to get my wife to watch it with me which uh she 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 just kept hearing me say oh my god i can't believe this is that it's like are you kidding me and she's like just rewind it i'll watch it with you so she sat down and we watched the whole thing it's like it was great so I, would think, I think that and samurai cop are like the two most recent Again, let's let's call them trash cinema, but very engaging cinema. So,
2: you know, out of out of all those 1970s Bigfoot movies that followed, most of them made the same mistake that all the films before Legend of Boggy Creek made, which is the beauty of Legend of Boggy Creek was you don't have to go anywhere. These things are going to show up in your backyard. Yeah. Almost every Bigfoot movie that followed two to three years after Legend of Boggy Creek made the mistake of embracing the old, let's go on an expedition, right? And the big difference is extraordinary people get horses and donkeys and go camping out in the wilderness looking for creatures. The beauty of Legend of Boggy Creek is ordinary people had that happen to them, right? And as soon as you make the decision, I'm going to go in the woods and just camp for three months in hopes of seeing Bigfoot, You are no longer an ordinary person. That's true. No, that's
1: that's a really interesting point. I like that.
2: And they turned them into expedition films all over again, which is what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World was in 1912 and when they filmed it in 1925. And that's what King Kong was in 1933. And that's what The Creature from the Black Lagoon was in 1953, blah, blah, blah. And the big difference was Legend of Boggy Creek disposed of all that they got rid of all those creaky old narrative templates but genre works in such a way that when a when a movie punches a hole in a genre and creates something new blazes a new path a new way of telling a story most people who follow consciously or unconsciously go back to the old template and that's part of why those mid-70s bigfoot movies really aren't much fun you know it's they're mainly they're sort of like bad westerns that only have a minute if that of a monster again right yeah and it's not until my favorite of the ones that followed is the creature from black lake
1: oh that is a good
2: one yeah and it's a really good one you know the premise is two college students are going to go down south and go where there's been sightings of monsters and that okay they're not on an expedition you know college students do that kind of stuff and always have and so it sort of had its cake and ate it too, and it's actually a really entertaining little. Oh, low it's budget. it's solid. It's no, a it's solid, solid film, right? Yeah, Great yeah, performances. Yeah. So uh, many character actors. Oh my gosh! Oh yeah, yeah. Jackie yeah, yeah. Lamb. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It's like you've got like half of Sam Peckinpah's, you yeah. know, entourage there in in Creature from Black Lake. Black Lake. Um, so that's the one I would recommend. I would recommend Creature from Black Lake and Night of the Demon to anybody who's curious about, you know what followed legend of boggy creek that that stood out because most of the others don't i mean there's ones like cry wilderness which is a really awful movie but it's entertaining as an awful movie that's one with the little boy who sees bigfoot and sort of bonds with it and you know but it's it's not it, it's it's entertaining for all the wrong reasons as opposed to creature from black lake and night of the demon which are entertaining for all the right reasons. <laughs>
1: yeah, very much so.
2: <laughs> well, I, I I
1: hope to get to all those. I I don't know how I'll, I'll manage, but I, I'm creeping through my 200. So we Well, well
2: let me let me give you some recommendations, may I? Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. And, okay. It, Here's sort of my, you know, my favorites of of the genre. Um uh as I mentioned at the end of uh Cryptid Cinema, you know, my my favorite cryptid film when I was finishing that book was Gael del Toro's The Shape of Water.
1: That's a, that's a good one. Yeah.
2: And it's the only one other than Legend of Boggy Creek that my wife has ever watched and that she enjoyed. <laughs> and, so
1: I understand. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 And it's and a
1: beautiful film. I mean, it's, a brilliant it's, movie, it's far more beautiful than I think Lovecraft would have ever expected anything
2: like that oh God, to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, but what was interesting to me, and this always happens, is when it was embraced by the world at large, A lot of my most diehard genre friends despised it. Like they all found things wrong with it. And to me, it's just like. What's a fairy tale? I mean, you you know. know, It's a great cryptid movie. It is the best creature from the Black Lagoon since the creature from the Black 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 Lagoon, period. But in terms of. It's no humanoids from the deep. (laughs) No, but my my wife, Marge, is not going to sit through humanoids from the deep. No, 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 no. (laughs) Ever. Uh, Okay, so here's the ones I'd recommend to you Um, out of the current batch. The brand, the more recent movies of like the last 10 years, um, I pulled four that I'm going to recommend to you. Okay. Abominable. Which if you have not seen, uh, it's a great little suspense horror film that hinges on a Sasquatch. It's basically Hitchcock's rear window with Sasquatch. Wow. Um, Exists which is my favorite of the found footage uh, Bigfoot movies. And there's a ton of those out there. And I have watched at least 25 of them. And the one that's entitled Exists is the best of the bunch. Um, it, it actually works quite beautifully. Uh, Primal Rage. And let me give you the subtitle as well, because there's a lot of movies called Primal Rage. It's called Primal Rage Bigfoot Reborn. Uh, it's a film by Patrick McGee. The first hour... Is brilliant, I think. I think it's a brilliant exploitation monster movie. The first hour works like a charm. And then it goes off the rails. It gets really stupid. But it doesn't ruin the power of that first hour, which I've gone back to a couple of times. And I also recommend if you have the time, and it is an investment of time, the best mini series that's been done that fits cryptid cinema is the AMC series The Terror. Uh, the first season. Uh, where it's a self-contained story, it is. That's a, a,
1: based on Simmons' novel, right?
2: I think. Yeah, it, yeah and it yeah, is yeah. a great adaptation of of uh, the Dan Simmons novel, and it is on its own terms one of the real classics of uh, cryptid cinema. It is a brilliant piece of work. Nice. Um, so those four I recommend. Um, I can also recommend uh, if you're into now, the Wendigo is one of those beings that some people don't consider a cryptid because You know, it's tied to Native American and First Nation lore. uh, Although, you know, there's entire academic textbooks out there about Wendigo lore and so on. So I'm not sure where it goes. But it's unusual that we have a single filmmaker, Larry Fessenden, who has done not one, not two, but three variations on the Wendigo. And they are all three completely different from one another. And I recommend watching all three in the order that Larry made them because okay. they're brilliant. Um, there's his feature called Wendigo, which I actually got to see in a theater. It was it was when there were still independent <laughs> art theaters in pockets of New England. And I got to see Wendigo uh, in a theater. And um, the second one is his feature, The Last Winter, starring Ron Perlman. Um, it's an ecological science fiction thriller, but it is also about mm-hmm. Wendigo lore and where it comes from and what it is. And the last one is he did an episode of the TV series Fear Itself. And there's an episode uh, involving uh, Wendigo, uh, a white man who disappears in the wilderness. And when he comes back, he is transformed. This is classic Wendigo case history stuff. So I recommend those three, um, either back to back or experience somehow together. Nice. then there's the art house you know then there's the the cryptid cinema examples that that don't fit at all the kind of exploitation or bad taste of that we're we're primarily talking about here but i gotta recommend them to people because you know cryptid cinema has been around long enough that it has now expanded as genres do beyond the parameters of just the little niche that it began in um I recommend The Last Broadcast from 1998. Yeah, yep. yep, yep. Um, and um, it fascinates me as a film because, yes, it's about the Jersey Devil, but it's not about the Jersey Devil. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> and, exactly. And that's sort of the shell game of the movie. Um, I also really recommend... influential on the Blair Witch people. I mean, clearly. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, not only that, I mean, The Last Broadcast in 1998 is truly the first American feature that was made all digital and projected all digital in a digital theater. It's the first film that did that a year before George Lucas claimed to have done it with the Phantom Menace. Wow. A year before the Blair Witchcraft, uh, Blair Witch Project came out, right? So last broadcast is this incredible pioneer movie. Uh, To me, it's the jazz singer of the digital age, the jazz singer, is the film that famously you know opened up movies to sound sure and uh to me the last broadcast is that for how we all watch movies today you know we go to a theater and a lot of people don't go to theaters anymore <laughs> pandemic aside yeah. but if you go to a theater you are watching your films projecting digitally the yep. last yep. broadcast was the ground zero of that technology in fact the night they first showed it they were working with texas instruments and no one knew if it was going to work wow they were pretty sure it was going to work they had tested it and in principle it should work but they did not know is this going to work can we download it from a satellite and digitally project it and it worked so okay and um i'm also going to mention um the shape of water which i think fits in this you know the Shape of Water is sort of the cryptid movie for people who don't like cryptid movies. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I I I seriously, it's a monster movie for people who don't like monster movies. It it's just an amazing movie. I highly um, I concur 100%. Yeah. Okay, the other cryptid films I'd recommend that kind of fit that uh The Beast of the Southern Wild. Have you seen that film?
1: I haven't. Uh that's um Is that the one with the girl and like there's a flood?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's all set down in uh, the the Southern Basin, uh, a village that has been essentially wiped out by one of the hurricanes. And it's this little girl who is trying to, you know, make sense of the adult world that she has grown up in, who have basically they have lost everything to the hurricanes that sweep through states like Louisiana and Mississippi and so on. And she keeps having this vision in her head of these huge, prehistoric, bison-like creatures that are coming toward them. And it's like cryptozoology as the embodiment of nature. And it's showing what that is in a child's imagination and what it is in the adult world, you know, and that she's not wrong that that's what she sees coming in because that is how these forces of climate change are operating in the real world. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a brilliant movie. It's I've a seen, beautiful like, all movie. The,
1: yeah. I was say I, the beauty of the cinematography. Oh, it is, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah.
2: ravishing film and it's also just a wonderful feat of characterization and storytelling. It, it, it is truly extraordinary. One of the best independent American films of the last decade but it is a cryptid movie and it Neat. is a brilliant cryptid movie. Um, there's a movie that got some, you know, buzz when it was first announced, but it is a great film. Uh, Sam Elliott in the man who killed Hitler and then and Big- Bigfoot. And <laughs> I love that movie. I love it that movie. sounds like a gimmick, but yeah. it is a terrific movie. And it's a yeah. terrific movie that's very relevant to everything we're dealing with in America right now, yeah. because it, 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 yes, Bigfoot's in it. And yes, it does involve, I mean, it doesn't lie. It, it doesn't lie. yeah. yeah it also, Hitler and
1: it, then it, the Bigfoot. It's, a, it's also, it seems like it's a meditation on aging and on, on, love. on the reality of narrative versus yep. perceived uh, sort of, uh, uh, I guess, what, like your personal narrative versus the sort of legends that can form around you, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah,
2: yeah. and why I think it's an important film, because we're seeing this play out in really scary ways right now. It's also about how it doesn't matter if something that people believe in is real or not. It also doesn't matter if you kill the human embodiment of an evil, right? He assassinates Hitler, but it doesn't stop. It doesn't change anything. Fascism. It doesn't change anything. And we're having to confront that day in, day out right now in our own culture, right? Yeah. No, it, it, it's and, a and I won't go into it because we're yeah. we're not here to do a political, you know, panel. No, no, <laughs> <channel, no. laughs> but but that's part of the power of the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot, and it is a brilliantly done uh, film. It, it's really moving. It's really beautiful, and Sam Elliott gives just a magnificent. He does. Performance. He
1: does. He's so, he's man. I I think uh, I think maybe his first big role was. Um, well, the... Uh, he goes leg- back
2: to leg- Frogs, my friend.
1: Well, he de- he was in Frogs, and there was another movie he was in where he didn't talk, but he was in... Uh, Legacy was, like, the first big movie, I remember... Well, to me, big. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, he goes back he said, to the... the Sa- Legacy... I remember, yeah, so, I, I,
2: I remember Sam... He made some great westerns, too, in the 80s yeah.
1: and 90s. Oh! Well, he's so. in um, uh, Butch Cassidy the Sundance Kid in an unspeaking part. Yeah. That's right, and, they, and he's... Because... Uh, what uh ross um his wife uh they get Catherine ross they're in that movie together and then they don't get married or anything and then later they do legacy together and they do get married like they're still together and they
2: sam elliott was one of those character actors initially sort of like you know a more romantic slab of harry dean stanton (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah yeah back at early harry dean stanton roles in the 60s and it's like man nobody would have dreamed where what he was going to become for us as an actor. And exactly. Sam yeah. Elliott is, you know, in a unique path, similar to that, uh, went a different way in a different, but this, this film is, I, I can't recommend it highly enough.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a goodie. I have, I totally agree. Totally agree.
2: Uh, there's a really strange one that a lot of people haven't heard of called Letters from the Big Man. Have you heard of that or I
1: have it? heard of it. I haven't haven't seen it, but I have definitely heard of it. You yeah. gotta see it. Right. I remember yeah. when it was when it was being produced, like uh I, the, the cryptid community was talking all about it. It's so, well yeah. worth seeing, yeah. and
2: it is a terrific little movie. And it also expands uh a whole branch of cryptid cinema, some of which we've already been talking about, you know, the whole interspecies aspect of it but it takes it in a whole different direction and it, it is a wonderful uh, film really terrific movie highly cool. highly recommend
1: maybe the only one you've talked about I don't have in my collection uh, so I, I should try to go try get it <laughs> yeah uh, we've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for monster truck listeners I know dino the big dinosaur podcast
0: studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world but also the world of today For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents.
1: Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming.
0: Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution.
1: Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur (laughs) injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases.
0: A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Kat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies?
2: Realm. I want to mention three Asian films: Uncle Bunmi, who can recall his past lives. I've heard of that. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah, it's a strange, very lovely ghost story, essentially. But there is a strong cryptid element in it that uh, plays a really key role, and um, and I I highly recommend it. It, It's it's uh, it's a really haunting, playful somber film and all those three things actually percolate together in the movie so um nice uncle boon me who can recall his past lives i'll
1: put a i'll put uh links to all this in the show notes so yeah
2: and uh the other two i'm going to recommend people have probably seen and didn't think of them as cryptid films um and uh they're they're both films uh they got a lot of play here in the states because bong june ho made them uh, the first one is The Host, which is one of my all-time favorite kaiju films. Mm-hmm. Um, arguably not a cryptid, and, and I get into this uh, in the filmography. There's two filmographies in the back of the second cryptid cinema book. One called uh, The Cryptid Cinema Filmography, where I'm proposing a filmography. But with it is The Cryptid Companion Filmography. And this includes films where, if you've seen The Host... It starts like a cryptid movie. There's some sort of bizarre life form that leaps out of the water and is seizing mm-hmm. people. Um, we never quite find out like what made it. It's tied in with some American pharmaceutical firm having a sloppy lab practice that probably spawned it. So it's sort of a mutant movie, which would mean it's not a cryptid, you know, in in the way that in the in cryptozoology we think about unidentified life forms, but. It's a terrific. I think it's one of the brilliant kaiju films of all time.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, and 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 has a lot of interesting family dynamics and humor. Oh yeah, god, so, yeah, god, yeah, yeah. So. There's some.
2: There's just some laugh out loud stuff in it, and also some really powerful, wrenchingly sad uh, moments in the film too. And uh, uh, Bong Joon-ho also made a brilliant movie that I believe is only available on Netflix to watch, which is Okja, O-K-J-A. Oh, The Giant Pig. as a great cryptid yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, yeah. it doesn't quite fit cryptid. When the film starts, it's like classical, you know, cryptid, especially since, I would say since Gorgo, you know, in 1960, 61. This whole bond between children and unidentified creatures that live out there has gone from being kind of a monster movie trope to codified in like the Gamera movies and the later Godzilla movies in the, in the early seventies. Um, and Okja takes it to a whole new level and it's also just a brilliant slice of satire. And, uh, uh, it's a great movie. There's one moment in it where I could not stop laughing, which is, there is a, uh, one of those city disaster scenes that are so beloved of Kaiju films and suddenly a john denver song begins to play on the <laughs> on the soundtrack and it is sublime it is the perfect perfect way of um taking that movie to its next level so um uh that those are two odd ones that i would really recommend to anyone who loves cryptid cinema
1: fantastic these are great recommendations i'm very excited about this i thank you so much for spending so much time talking to me i really appreciate it my pleasure hopefully so,
2: we'll do this again
1: yeah uh, no for sure so when the book comes out uh when, when do you think the next one's coming out
2: well uh i will keep you posted and in fact if you're interested blake i will send you progress on it uh i'll make you one of the folks that we send pd oh i'm to
1: definitely so interested can it, in that, so i'm can sure you see it coming yeah, together yeah
2: and um the way I, I mean, we're doing it print-on-demand with Amazon the same way we did the first book. And part of the beauty of that system is you can tweak it. Like, we're, yeah. we're actually able to print copies, make corrections, make changes. So and this is
1: actually printed by that's, Amazon.
2: That's really. print-on-demand. And this is that, fantastic quality. Oh, yeah. And that book primarily existed and came together the way it did because I was testing the system. If you look through it, uh, I have spiced it with a lot of my original artwork. Yeah, And I chose artwork that was done with different tools. So there's grayscale painted artwork, there's wash drawings, there's brush and ink, pen and ink. Because I wanted to see how would it look with the current print-on-demand technology. And it came out looking great. So with um, the Boggy Creek Bequest, we're doing it in color. We're going to push the envelope in terms of color. We will also make it available in black and white because color books are very expensive. I was actually going to ask, was, what, is that, what does that
1: do to the per unit yeah, cost? I don't know.
2: So the color edition could be crazy expensive. So yeah. I what we, what we hope to do is a color hardcover edition for the real connoisseurs, a color paperback edition, and then uh, a black and white edition, or we may break it into two black and white editions. So the people that just want to read about Legend of Boggy Creek can get the one book in black and white, very affordably priced around 21 bucks. Yeah. And volume two would be the second half of Boggy Creek Bequest focuses on um, some of the films that came after. I I do a full interview with Sean Whiteley, the man who directed uh, Southern Fried Bigfoot, which is my my favorite of all the documentaries that followed. Um, what charles pierce did and i watched i watched hundreds of them i'm not exaggerating yeah, well i know and, they exist i yes yeah, so. and i did a full career length film by film interview with seth breedlove covering the entire small town monsters filmography
1: yeah uh, nice because
2: to me what sean did with southern fried bigfoot and what seth and mark and all the people that are part of the small town monsters team have done is they've taken uh the trail that charles pierce blazed in 1972 and they've brought it to the next level in the 21st century i agree i agree very much so i've met seth a few times and and the the films are great and and if i were to recommend only one more movie my all-time favorite small-town monster movie—the one I would recommend to anybody to watch—and that I would add to the essential cryptid uh, cinema list—is Momo, the Missouri Monster. It is a—I love the setup for that. I love the word. setup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and, for, and for the listeners,
1: just... that's the—he's uh, basically set it up as though it's like a lost episode of of uh, something that, that never got released, but they're going right. to let it. But now you're going to get to see what they did with this, and uh, and it's about one of the strangest real bigfoot cases out there so
2: yep and and it's what they did is they not only had the conceit of let's manufacture a 1970s film that never existed they also bring in lyle black who's a real is, cryptozoologist I, okay. I, and lyle I, I, is narrating the meta yeah, it's all, it's very layered. Um, the I, actual interviews with the yeah. actual survivors of the people who were in the community where yeah. the momo sightings happened, with the fictional film that Lyle is the TV TV host, host for. <laughs> for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, it is a it, it is like a brilliant uh, uh, autopsy of the entire. It, it's of it's cinema. more
1: layered than a fancy cake. It's very layered, right? It's, it's very great. layered, and so. it's a
2: lot of fun which is even more important with the fancy cake. Does it, it taste is. good? It tastes great.
1: Yeah, right. I'm not saying it's <laughs> so, nutritious, but you'll enjoy it, right? It's so. very
2: <laughs> nutritious, actually. So, um, so, you know, that's... Uh, that. I think we could break... If Cryptid Cinema, The Boggy Creek Request, the second volume, ends up being too big, we're going to release it as what it is. Um, but we're also going to break it into um, possibly two less expensive volumes so that people that just want to read the Legend of Boggy Creek stuff can buy that black and white volume and the people that want to read the legacy stuff, which primarily is composed of those interviews with um, contemporary filmmakers. uh, That would also be a more affordable black and white volume. We're going to play with what's possible. Part of the fun of print on demand is, you know, you can do things that no publisher would ever allow you to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly.
1: And I, I, I'm very interested in all that. I've been following print on demand since it really got started. Um, and you know, I've got a couple of books in the work myself. You should uh, be
2: doing it. I mean, yeah. really, it's it's the first time that the gatekeeper has been removed. And I yeah. still work with publishers, right? I'm I'm about uh, right We're in the middle of contracting right now on a big graphic novel project that' that if it happens, uh, will be done with a mainstream publisher. I still work with publishers. My brood book, which came out last year, you know, this was done with uh, two imprints, Electric Dreamhouse which has a series called the midnight movie monographs and PS publishing. Um, and, and they're based in the United kingdom. So I'm still working with publishers, but the fun of doing these books is um, Tim Paxson. And I can make these books into precisely what we want them to
1: be. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So And no, for we- the authors like yourself, Blake, uh, if you were to, to interest a publisher in one of your book projects, You'd get a little tiny advance. Exactly. Maybe yeah. something on the back end.
1: And then but be responsible you, for all the public. Uh, and you've uh, got to
2: do everything anyway. I get to do all the PRs. Meeting. Whereas yeah, yeah, yeah. print on demand with Amazon, when you recommend it to your friends to go and buy a cryptid cinema, every month ends with a little money going into my bank account from whatever sold the month. Nice. That's wonderful. I don't have to wait six months or a year for the trickle down. Yes. Yeah. You don't have to do audit. Amazon (laughs) puts it right in the bank account. And, um, and my experiment with cryptid cinema was twofold. If I put a book out there and don't promote it at all, will people buy it? I've done almost no promo on cryptid cinema. I do a little bit when it first came out. Um, And if I take the period out of my middle name, right? It's Stephen R. Bissett, but if I take the period out, if people go on Amazon and buy Swamp Thing, it doesn't take them to Cryptid Cinema. I was curious. Could I sell a book if it wasn't associated with Swamp Thing? Yeah. And by taking the period out of my name, it did it. Nice. Any sales I get on Cryptid Cinema is because of Cryptid Cinema. It's yeah. not because you bought all the swamp things and cryptid cinema popped up on the Amazon feed because yeah. it doesn't yeah. because it's Stephen R with a period on all my mainstream books. It's R without a period on cryptid cinema, which is, you know, sort of a suicidal, stupid thing to do, but it was also a test. I wanted yeah. to see what would happen. So well, well, hopefully you'll get a few more bucks from, from talking with me. So I hope so please. <laughs> and thank you for, thank you for buying a copy. And I'm, I hope you enjoyed it. It was mainly meant to be a I, I, fun, bl- pleasurable this, read.
1: It was like the best present for me that I didn't know I was giving myself. You know hey, what I mean? There like, you go. <laughs> I mean, it was it was such a delight. I loved it. So, um, and I'm sure the audience will love it too. I've been I've been like, see, for the for the bonus material for our our bonus, it's, it's a I call it big footage is the oh bio- yeah yes. oh
2: yeah yeah that. that's the way to go Bingo. yeah so
1: it's it's just all bigfoot movies and that's just something if i do for the patrons uh special but uh yeah i this is i just love it. this was I, i'm proud to have this on the shelf and look forward to the other volumes now i'm going to do something that's unfair to you which is that's all right bring it on i did i didn't prepare you for this because i didn't know how long we we're gonna get to talk that's but okay in the typical monster talk interview we end with our signature question and that is the completely unfair question. You're going to hate me. Okay. What's your favorite monster?
2: Oh, that's easy. Oh, my is it? favorite monster, the creature from the black lagoon. Awesome. Okay. My absolute Why? favorite monster. Yeah. I don't know. You know, like I, my favorite monster should be a Ray Harry Hassen monster because you know, the the formative experience in my life was seeing be from 20 fathoms on tv when i was like four yeah um but for some reason the gill man just like captured me when i was it's, a kid it's, it's a and good costume it holds it, up lovely it's, it's not, not just a costume it's like he became this weird surrogate me this weird projection of of you know my primal self like when i would when i'd when i'd be angry when i was a kid you know i wished i was the gill man <laughs> <laughs> or, or if i was in the woods and i was just like tearing through the woods when i was five and six it's like i was the gill man you wow know? i don't know what it was it was like this really primal instinctive thing i think part of it might be you know growing up in in the part of new england i grew up in in northern vermont we, we weren't allowed to have pets when i was a kid right because my my mom and my dad had both come from families uh, uh, that had, you know, 12 living brothers and sisters. And my mom grew up on a farm and pets just were like vermin to them. So we didn't have a dog. We didn't have a cat. So, you know, going out every spring, getting frogs, eggs, bringing them home, putting them in an aquarium, nursing them through tadpole, letting them go when they were frogs. So I think the frog thing was part of it for me, you know, because that was the only living life form that i had that kind of regular relationship with yeah that that, that was real you know that wasn't imaginary that was real yeah. um and and i was that kind of kid you know i was the kid that picked up the rocks and what's under oh, yeah. the rocks yeah. Yeah. And yeah. my Rod brother and i caught and, painted and, turtles yeah. and we actually you know built this big pen in the backyard and raised painted turtles nice that whole year they laid eggs you know yeah. so i think the creature the gill man you know kind of it was the fantasy aspect projection of those bonds I felt with nature as a kid, with primarily amphibians and reptiles that were around us in the natural environment. Um, and and I, I think part of it was there were no like there's no venomous reptiles in Vermont. Like we didn't have to be afraid of the snakes. We yeah. Well that dead. is nice. We, yeah, we, you yeah. know, I guess rattlesnakes have been found on camel sump in one other location, but you know, they weren't around. So I wasn't afraid of, of them. And that also meant the creature was like, you know, my buddy. Nice.
1: That is fantastic. (laughs)
2: He is still the monster I most love to draw. You know, if if you're on my Facebook page, uh, you know, the two monsters I draw the most and and put up sketches of on uh, my Facebook page would be Swamp Thing because that's what people want me to draw. But the creature is the one I love to draw, you know. That's great. Well, that's a great answer. Yeah. 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 And it also ended up tying into all the things I ended up loving growing up. You know, Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. It was plugged right into there. Um, you know, I my I remember dad and mom taking us to see uh, The Incredible Mr. Limpet with Don Knox. Oh, I love that movie! Yeah, yeah, you know, a guy that wants to turn into a fish. Hey, that yeah.
1: that was me, right? That one in the Ghost of Mister Chicken. <laughs> I don't know why you I always I love the Ghost
2: of Mister Chicken. Yeah, yeah. Chicken, <laughs> you know? uh, but and I think it's part of the reason Shape of Water hit such a deep reservoir for me. It was like that was the creature movie I always wished existed and now it does and that's awesome I, just, I don't see any downside to it you know well so. that okay so i have to
1: end this uh yeah. let me let's do it as though because there's going to be a short version of this for the conference oh so. yeah oh yeah
2: so you, you can do whatever you want with all this we uh-oh. haven't we haven't done anything that anybody would object to
1: no no i don't think so not at all no i think people are going to love this so uh, so let's on behalf of the adventures in Portage sci-fi fast i want to say thank you for taking time to talk to us this has been great. My great pleasure. on behalf of Monster Talk, I absolutely love this conversation. Thank you so much. We will definitely have to have you back on. Yeah, my great pleasure. So, normally, I have a co-host. I don't know why I'm doing this. She lives in Denver. I live in Georgia. But anyway, my co-host, Dr. Karen Stolzno, uh, would normally be a part of this. So, oh Uh, let's
2: do that sometime
1: yeah yeah yeah. we'll have to have her she would she would dig this this would be great so i it was really wonderful talking to you i obviously you love this stuff at least as much as me if not way more so that's great so i
2: may have a few years of love up on you yeah you you, you, yeah i'll
1: earn into it give me time (laughs) (laughs) so
2: blake this has been great uh thanks for inviting me in i'm really glad that russ suggested it and um we'll do the q a on the day right sounds like it yeah that's exciting all right
1: monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
1: You just heard an interview with artist and author Stephen R. Bassett about his book, Cryptid Cinema. The book is available on Amazon, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Two more volumes are planned, and I'm looking forward to those with great interest. I really enjoyed this book, and I enjoyed my interview with Steve, and I hope you did too. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Mustard Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. If you enjoy this discussion of movies, you might also like my show, The Horror Podcast. I don't put out episodes very often, but it is a fun show about horror in all its guises. Plus, I believe it's probably the only podcast that digs in on the question at the front of everyone's mind. Sure, that was a great horror film. But how is it related to Star Trek? Well, tune in and find out.
0: been a monster house presentation lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess haha in my dentist's office